Hello, this is Kat and this is Feminine Chaos. I'm here today with Lee Stein, author of Self Care and the recent poetry collection, What to Miss When. We're talking about the vibe shift. Be the vibe shift you want to see in the world. <laughs> is that what Gandhi said? That's what Gandhi said. Oh, well, no wonder things didn't end so well for him. <laughs> so yeah, we are talking about the vibe shift, which as I understand it, keeping in mind that I'm a million years old, is just another way of talking about like the aesthetic trends that kind of rule at a given moment. But for some reason, everybody's very interested in this and even trepidatious about it, according to this piece in the cut. The way that this is being discussed, like the actual lingo about it, is will you survive? It's like vibe shift or die. Right. Yeah. So we're referring to this article that was written by Allison P. Davis in The Cut, which is a vertical of New York Magazine. It came out February 16th. The other thing I was thinking about as I reread it today is like, this is very New York centric. Like it's referring to certain clubs. And so I think it's easy for people uh, across the United States to say this is like a very insular thing, but it, it wasn't intended to be bigger than it is. It's New York centric. Yeah, that may be true. I think that, you know, like many conversations, this one suffers from New York Times source selection bias syndrome, where you've got a, a number of people, like a small number of people, but who are sort of overrepresented in terms of media consumers and media creators who are doing something that's a little crazy. And then for every one of them, there are 10 normal people, you know, somewhere that's not New York City, like, no, this is not a thing. What are you talking about? Right, right, right. We're going to talk about those people anyway, because everyone's talking about them. Yeah, everyone's talking about this. And so in the article, Alison P. Davis, she's not the one coming up with the phrase vibe shift. She's quoting a 35-year-old trend forecaster named Sean Monahan, who said that a vibe shift was coming. And this was a year ago. And I have a feeling that this was a piece that was like slated to run summer of 2021. And then the Delta variant happened. And so we all went back into hibernation for a year. And so now, you know, the, how these pieces are always need to be tied to something. I mean, pegged to something timely. This felt like a piece that was like sitting in a drawer for a year and is coming coming out now. I was surprised when I realized that the the piece that Sean wrote, and I actually talked to him on another podcast. He's uh, he certainly got his finger on the pulse of these things, but that piece came out like last summer, and it was obviously fueling a lot of discussion about the quote unquote hot vaxxed summer we were all going to have. Lee, did you have a hot vaxxed summer? You got married. I did. I think I did have. I had a bachelorette party. I had a wedding without masks because we were legally allowed to do so at the time. Yeah. You had probably the hottest vax summer. <laughs> of all. Of all. But also in a way that signaled perhaps your graceful exit from the land of caring about vibe shifts, because it seems like one of the things that determines whether or not you survive, quote unquote, a vibe shift is whether you've achieved certain benchmarks of adulthood. So it's like if you've bought a home or gotten married or had a baby, you know, all of these adult things, um, then supposedly you're sort of outside of the box in which people care about this kind of thing anymore. Oh, I don't know if I agree. I think, I think, like, I read this article and I was like, hell yes, bring on the vibe shift. Like, I think I'm a vibe shift optimist. 
And I'm not worried about whether or not I'll survive it. I'm like very eager for whatever the next trend cycle is because I'm so bored of the current cultural moment. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, anybody who's creating in the current culture has to be praying that this is around the corner and that we're going to get something a little new, a little less clenched, maybe. <laughs> like everyone's sphincter is just going to like on mass, mass sphincter relaxation. It's all just going to come pouring out it being the new vibe. We need the new vibe release. Yeah. So should we talk about what um, – what he was pointing to as the current trend cycle and what he talks what he thinks is coming next. Yeah, yeah, you can why don't why don't you encapsulate this? I think you'll do a good job of explaining it. So, I'm just going to quote this is quoting the trend forecaster from the cut article and he says, "I feel like the trajectory of the 2010s has been exhausted in a lot of ways. The culture war topic no longer seems quite as interesting. Social media isn't a place where you can be as creative anymore." Younger people are less interested in things like quote unquote cancel culture. These were kind of like the big pillars we used to navigate pop culture in the 2010s. And we had the rise of all these world spanning Sauron-esque tech platforms that literally have presences on every continent. People want to make things personal again. So one of the predictions for the vibe shift, I think, is that we have to be less online. That's what I keep thinking. Like, is the vibe shift, does the vibe shift mean I have to sign off? Is it about a return to meet space and off the internet? That's my theory too. And the other thing aesthetically, I mean, you mentioned aesthetics early on, like he's predicting like an aesthetic return to the early aughts, American apparel, messy hair, messy makeup, like sleaze vibe, which I think I'm too old to legally return to that aesthetic. But um, I can see it does seem like so much of these predictions are just like cycles of backlash, right? So if we're if we have a backlash to like the girl boss pink minimalistic aesthetic, I think we will see like more decadence and maximalism and like a a, a new rococo. Yeah, you know it's interesting because uh, people were talking about the early. Well, the early aughts or the early 2010s, which, you know, I think, I don't know if you were also living in Brooklyn at that time or did we miss each other? I was in Brooklyn. Yes, I was in Brooklyn as yeah. well. But and yet we did not know each other. Imagine that. Like ships passing in the night. I was in Bushwick. You were in Greenpoint. Yes. And, um, you know, separated by Graham Avenue. We just never encountered <laughs> each other. Imagine. But yeah, there was that whole, and then this is interesting because when you think about the reigning aesthetic, this sort of mo the millennial pink, which is like a more relaxed baby pink, verging on peach, maybe a little beige. There's something kind of fleshy, but very sexless about it. It's like a pale Pepto-Bismol. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's not, it's not sexy. And I think that the almost sterility of this does stand in real contrast to when I mean, you talk about American apparel and then you've got to immediately think of people like Terry Richardson, the photographer, who mm -hmm. before Me Too was Me Too, like this guy was so creepy that he already raised eyebrows. Even in the midst of like the sleaziest sleaze aesthetic reigning, he was still creepy. People were like, uh, maybe this is too far. Maybe this is not okay. Um, so it's really funny to imagine 
that after 10 years or so of the millennial aesthetic, people are yearning to go back to that. Yeah. I mean, because what does it represent? Does it represent like a giving no fucks, just being like, I, I think part of the vibe shift that's coming too is that there has to be some, there has to be more transgression, transgressive art, subversive art, because what we've had for the last, I don't know, six or seven years is politically correct art and moral grandstanding on the internet and Puritans deciding, you know, what books should and shouldn't be allowed, which you and I have both talked and written about. So is that the appeal? Is it is it breaking taboo and breaking boundaries that's going to come next? Well, there, here's a question. What would transgressive art in this moment look like? Okay, I have to talk about this novel I just read that I like I read it in like a flush of ecstasy because it felt like something totally new and different and it's this novel called Vladimir by Julia May Jonas and the narrator is a 58-year-old woman and college professor. She's an English professor. Her husband has been suspended from teaching because he had relationships with students who were of age before the college made it um, not allowed. So the relationships happened before the rule, but there's been this petition circle circulated to get him stripped of his job and he's undergoing this, this um, investigative process. And the way this book talks about like Me Too politics on campus and agency and desire and attraction and, you know, when we're choosing something for ourselves. It felt so fresh to me. It felt so different from all the Me Too stuff. And I was about novels, I mean, and I was thinking about um, this negative review of Megan Dom's book that I think came out in 2018 or 2019 in BuzzFeed, where I felt like Megan Dom was handling the same subject with the same kind of curiosity and nuance. And this was just destroyed by a millennial writer in BuzzFeed basically saying like, you're an old person and you don't have a right to talk this way. You don't understand what young people feel. And it was like, she wasn't allowed to do that. And then this novel comes and this novel has been like universally acclaimed. Everyone loves this novel. And so to me, that really signals something new and fresh. Interesting. How old is the author? And who is the author? The author is like my age. So the author is late 30s and the main character is late 50s. Um, so I heard her say in an interview that she's 20 years younger than the narrator. But that, I mean, that to me is like the freedom of fiction because she could invent a narrator and she could invent a plot in which to reckon with these difficult questions that are playing out in the culture wars that ultimately I think the culture wars are not between right and left. Like I think so many of the culture wars are intergenerational. It's between the Xers and the Gen Zers or the boomers and the millennials. That's really interesting because um, one of the things that Sean Monahan identified as fueling these vibe shifts is he called it patricidal, which I thought was hilariously overwrought, but it's also such a good word um, that, you know, whatever generation is coming up tries to kind of murder the aesthetic um, and the vibe of whichever generation preceded them. Yes. And so, yeah, so you get this backlash. So, yeah, I mean, it would be kind of amazing given how, I mean, it's unfortunate, I think the marker of millennial culture has been the rise of this kind of puritanical set of sensibilities in a lot of ways. Like that's really what people associate us with. It's amazing to imagine that Gen Z 
might do completely the opposite, intentionally thumbing their noses at all of this, saying, absolutely not, we reject this and we want sleaze. My other prediction is that we're going to see the return of absurdism. Like people talk about Gen Z as being very sincere and being all like, they're like multiple Greta Thunbergs. Like they're all very worried and they're all very serious and they're all serious activists. Mm -hmm. But I predict a rise of absurdism. And I was so fascinated by that birds aren't real campaign that was like started by these Zoomers to kind of make fun of QAnon, but they like invented a conspiracy theory to point a finger at actual conspiracy theories by saying that birds aren't real. They're all just government drones. That's the joke. But I'm curious to see what's going to happen as we emerge from this period of time in which politics and activism became our identities. What's the next wave of that? And are we going to go in a more absurdist direction like the playwrights after World War II, like Beckett that were writing Waiting for Godot or Happy Days where like a woman is buried up to her waist and she's talking to the audience about like how happy she is in her life. That to me feels like the appropriate vibe for this moment. Like we're laughing through the futility and the and the death and the destruction. Oh, that's hysterically funny, especially because so when you talked about how people like to describe Gen Z as very earnest, I think that that's entirely about, you know, millennials projecting onto Mm. Gen Z. And it's been such a thing. And it's actually it's driven me crazy because it seems to pop up everywhere in, in any media coverage or any culture writing, rather, that has focused on like what the kids are up to. And it's this worshipful tone. And it's like, oh, my God, you know, these kids had so much to teach me. And it's I almost <laughs> I think a plea for relevance from writers who don't really like the idea that the millennial generation is on its way out, you know, who are sort of starting to sense that their relevancy was going to be waning very shortly. And so they tried to kind of cozy up to this younger generation and be like, yes, like, you know, they're going to save us. And I just got, I absolutely love the idea of a bunch of Gen Zers being like, oh yeah, we're going to save you. Guess what? Birds aren't real. (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) Right. And also like they communicate in memes. Like there, there is something like silly and playful, um, but just the way you describe it is so funny. I just kept thinking it's like it's like they're child cancer patients or something, and they're like, "Oh my god!" Like I know so much more of how to live after I met that that little girl with leukemia. That is the tone that they that. But yeah, but power and status is so associated with youth and millennials. It's like we went from being derided and mocked for our avocado toast um, and for not knowing how to adult the verb um, to being like irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, you know, we never really stepped into our power, but who's to blame for that? (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I stepped into my power. Speak for yourself. No, I mean, I I don't know. This is going to be a smug thing to say, but whatever. I've never really identified with the thing that is such a millennial thing to do um, of talking about adulting as a verb and talking about how hard it is. um, That's just never resonated for me. Yeah, I don't think that's smug. I mean, I joke that I'm, I I jokingly identify as Gen X just because I like, I feel that I have richer conversations with members of the Gen X 
generation. Like I feel less censored when I talk to Gen Xers than when I talk to millennials. I'm more on guard when I talk to millennials. Yeah, I think that it's it's this fear of sort of being in charge of things, of being in charge even of your own life that I've never been able to identify with at all. You know, this idea of like, oh my God, I have to do laundry and it's like, or you could just not do laundry. Like, you know, you, you get to decide. <laughs> and I think that a lot of millennials find that terrifying. I wonder if one of the hallmarks of our generation is this kind of quest for a parent figure. You know, we don't like being the adult in the room. We want somebody else to be that person and to do that for us and play that role. Um, And so you would see, especially when like millennial writers who are in their 30s would be writing about Gen Z, like who in that time were in high school dating and being like, these kids understand so much more about consent than I ever did. It's like, really? You know, yeah. you, you, like many of these people were not just sexually active adults, but, you know, in long-term relationships in marriages. And it's like, really? Like you, you haven't figured out sex, but the 17-year-old <laughs> has. That's interesting. Yeah. But that, I think it's even a broader cultural phenomenon, this, this idea of like, who's the adult in the room? Who can I tattle to? Who can I escalate this to? I see it on the internet. I've seen it from my point of view as someone who ran a large Facebook group and people would come to me like I was the adult in the room to ask me to moderate, you know, conflicts between different people. But I also see it like in workplaces and I, I've seen how things fall apart when you've got just like a bunch of freelance gig workers in a conflict and there's no one to escalate to, right? Because you're like, well, this person did something to me that I didn't like. Like, who do I tell? And sometimes some people say, well, I'm just going to tell the whole internet, right? That they're an asshole so that I can publicly shame them. So I think this has broader broader impacts than just between generations or among generations. Oh, for sure. Although when did it become kind of accepted that having your feelings hurt was a situation that required some kind of redress, like some kind of official response. This is something that I've, I think has been an observed shift and I would love it to kind of, you know, as we enter a new era, um, maybe go back in the other direction. It's just like this inability to maybe be a little wounded and then let it go. I mean, I'm never going to let it go, Kat, but like, I'm not going to escalate it either. I just like carrying my little petty grudges. You know, I just like taking them out, stroking them a little bit. You know, they're just like my little collection. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I totally have like a a list of people on whom I plan to exact this one very particular type of petty revenge if I ever happen to be in the same room as them. Um, If I'm ever, and I won't say who these people are, but I, you know, like Arya Stark, you know, there's a deep cut from the previous five shift. Um, I know all their names. Uh, If I'm ever in a crowded room with any of these people, I'm going to go up behind them and I'm going to step on the back of their shoe so that their heel pops out of it. Oh, that's it. <laughs> that is very awkward. It would be embarrassing. Yeah, and yeah. surprising. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I then I would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do that, and I would just walk away. Is it a millennial thing to fantasize about petty revenge and carry around a little like secret bitch log full of micro grudges? Or is it? Just I think human? my my fantasy is like just waiting for the day when they need to ask me a favor and I can turn them down. Ooh. You'll have to get – this is interesting because 
on the one hand, you know, it's a power fantasy because you're being asked for a favor. That's right. On the other hand, you are really kind of punishing yourself because you have to maintain a level of closeness to this loathed person the entire time on the off chance that they eventually think they can ask you a favor just so you no, can No, I don't no. have to stay close to them. I just have to become increasingly famous and powerful because then they'll try to leverage their tiny minuscule connection to me from years ago to try to ask me for something and I can decline. Ah, I see. But it does involve, you know, you do have to allow them to labor all of these years under the delusion that you don't <laughs> hate them. Well, this is I mean, turning into my therapy, cat. This is therapy with cat. This is what you do in therapy? <laughs> God, that sounds fun. I'm going to start going to therapy. Uh, so vibe shifts, right. Um, well, you know, I, I think also that since we were talking about, you know, the idea of like interpersonal relationships, I think that maybe one of the things that's going to change um, and one of the sources of yearning when it comes to this desire for something new is about sex and is about what happened for the past two years when we moved like all our interpersonal relationships online in the name of safety and what that did to people. Because I think that a lot of people like at the start were a little excited about it. It was like, this is going to be great. I never have to say yes to plans on Saturday night again. Oh, at the beginning of lockdown. Yeah. And then the mm -hmm. reality of this, I mean, I know people who have like not eaten in a restaurant in two years and, um, I think that it did something to them. And I don't think that people are necessarily fans of what it's done to them. Yeah, this is a perfect segue for me to reference um, this Substack by Haley Naiman in the Substack Maybe Baby, and it's titled The Death of Sex. And so she has a similar theory to you. And she's using she's using sex as like a euphemism for basically like anything that happens in person. But she wrote, when I think of the dominant trends of the last five or 10 years... Um, most of them engender the same lack of humanity, personal branding, biohacking, virtual reality, reality television, fillers and filters, Botox and plastic surgery, being extremely online, corporate activism, minimalism, cancel culture, it goes on. Each one feels empty and sexless in its own special way. And they all trace back to the digital, digital panopticon. One way to view the irritating state of things is as a kind of collective sexual frustration. And I think she really has a point in that, you know, I've, I've always been like pro-internet. Like I feel like the internet has given me so much, including friendships and relationships with real people. I met my husband on the internet a long time ago. Um, so I've always been like pro-internet. But I think it's true that when digital technology replaces so much of what we used to do face-to-face, -face, such as ordering food, um, working in an office, dating, when that all becomes digital, I don't think it's healthy or sustainable. The other thing too is what it does to intimacy when you bring all this stuff online. And I'm going to talk about this book by Laura Kipnis that I just read, Love in the Time of Contagion. It's all about what COVID did to um, sex and dating and also to the relationships of existing couples who ended up suddenly like trapped together in small spaces. But one of the things she points out in this book, and I thought it was really, really interesting, was that 
at the start of the pandemic, dating and courtship and flirtation, all of this stuff that used to maybe happen in person and that used to maybe have something to do with, you know, physical chemistry and pheromones and being up close to somebody kind of like, even if it's just brushing your forearm against theirs at a bar, um, all of this was replaced by online interaction. And it was like, well, we're going to go inside where it's safe. Um, and at the time, you know, the safety in question was safety from the virus, but very quickly, because at the same time, there was this other, like, sort of, we were right in the wake of Me Too. Mm-hmm. There was also this general sense that dating in and of itself, being physical in a space with somebody wasn't really safe, that, you know, something bad could happen, that this was a dangerous endeavor. And what's fascinating is, when we all went inside where it's safe and started conducting all of these interpersonal relationships online, instead of being like, okay, well, now we're really safe, but we're kind of bored also. So let's talk about ways to reinvigorate this with a sense of excitement that might like approximate what it was like to be in person with people. Instead, everyone just brought their sense of danger indoors and was like, online dating is so dangerous. Like, we have to mm. talk about how to stay safe when you're dating online with people you'll never meet. And like, that's fascinating because what kind of safety do you have to cultivate? Like emotional, that's the only thing left. It's like, I might get my feelings hurt. That's really dangerous. I've got to figure out how to stay safe when I'm making these connections through a screen with people who like, I'm never going to meet. Oh, this is new to me. So you're saying that people talk about safety for online dating with people they have not even met in person. Yeah, like there was a Vogue article at the start of the pandemic when people started, you know, doing and like match.com was running those commercials where you had the quote unquote couple who were apart who had never met in real life who were like having a relationship. You're telling me match.com is making an ad based on me at like age 13 on AOL? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a little weird one of them was 13. Uh, I thought it was inappropriate, but <laughs> Like, I mean, you did you you didn't see this commercial? No. Oh God. I watched it so many times, and every single time I would feel my gorge rise. You have this couple, they're they're chat they're video chatting, and one of them says to the other something like, We're such dorks. Like you're showing your boyfriend your dog on camera, and you're like, Yes, we have a relationship. It just oh God, it made my skin crawl. I was like, something is missing. This is not love and this is not sex. And we're trying to persuade people that it is because the alternative is, well, I mean, for one, because we want them to buy Match.com memberships, but also because it's it's too depressing to fathom that actually we've just pressed pause on this fundamental aspect of the human experience. But anyway, I got kind of off track there. What I was going to say is that at the start of the pandemic, as all of this was going on, people were sort of, you know, moving into online dating for lack of any other alternative. Vogue or Teen Vogue, I guess, published this article that was like how to stay safe when you're dating through apps, like, but but never meeting when you're just like pandemic dating online on camera. How to stay safe on the internet from your own home. Yes. That's really interesting. There's another, this is just making me think of another beat in this maybe baby essay 
um, where she says like, even like having kids is like sexless. It's all about studies, data, biological clocks, cost benefit analysis. This, this to me does seem like a very like elder millennial uh, preoccupation, but it's like sex has been stripped away from everything except, except uh, OnlyFans. Except OnlyFans. Well, I mean, that's, that's an interesting wrinkle because there it's a transaction. Right. But it's like, that's the only safe place for it now. It's like, we took it out of the real world and we said it was too dangerous. We all went online. And so we're like, okay, we're just going to put sex over here on this website. Um, it's like compartmentalization of it. Right. And as you do that, and especially as it becomes transactional, um, obviously I, I wrote this whole thing about unheard for this. So I'm just at this point kind of riffing on myself here, but please do, please. it's, but there's safety in that because you are paying for something and you know exactly what you're going to get, or you're being paid for something and you know exactly what you're going to provide. Mm-hmm. And all of the messiness that comes from actual intimacy and the ambiguity is stripped away. And that's, I think, when people talk about how like courtship or dating or having feelings or falling in love is dangerous, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the fear of being intimate and vulnerable and opening yourself up to being hurt by another person. Yeah. And I wonder if we can blame tech. Like, I, I just feel like tech has tried to fit everything into a little box, you know, to tech tries to make our lives frictionless so that everything is simpler, it's optimized. And so I think that's also something that's going to go through a vibe shift. Like I was thinking, what's what's the opposite of productivity culture? Is it going to be process culture? Is it all going to be the process of making instead of the product that is made and that we are churning out as little worker bees trying to be productive all the time? Because I can definitely feel the rebellion against hustle culture, certainly. I mean, that's coming out so much after all the girl boss brouhaha is, you know, people saying, I don't want to work this hard. I don't want to hustle. I don't want three gigs. Um, That's not what I want. I don't want to work 80 hours a week and I don't want to commute to my job. So it's like, it's slacker culture. (laughs) And maybe that's cycling back to the nineties. We're going to have like a new mall rats for the 21st century. Oh God, that would be amazing. Okay. So here's what I'm thinking about the show Euphoria, which I don't watch, but- I watch people talking about Euphoria. Yes. So I was on a podcast recently with Nick Gillespie of Reason. We we were actually, without even knowing we were talking about the vibe shift, we were talking about the vibe shift because we were Uh talking about the Matrix, (laughs) which was the start of a vibe shift back in 1999. And then he was like, well, what, you know, what comes after that? Because in a way, we've spent basically the past 20 years kind of in the grips of the impact of the matrix on the culture. Um, and not, not necessarily aesthetically, fortunately, like the vogue for leather hot pants and floor length black trench coats has passed us by, although who knows, maybe it'll come back now because nostalgia. But um the sense of like moving your whole life online and living in virtual space and, uh, you know, basically foregoing what's happening in reality, foregoing meat space. That's basically been like this experiment that we've been in for the past 20 years, culminating in the pandemic when everything moved completely online. And we were like, we're going to see how this works. And then it turns out that it didn't work. And I think that the popularity of euphoria which, I mean, you can tell just from watching like clips of it, 
that there's this sense of like, there's closeness and there's other people's skin and it's sweaty. And it's like the, the tone of it, like is very warm visually. Like it's, it's got kind of this golden orange, you know, heat to it. And Mm -hmm. the popularity of that show, I think symbolizes a yearning that's bigger, you know, and for something like that for that kind of sweaty up close with other people experience while high on drugs while high on drugs yeah yeah like you want the virtual reality in your own mind (laughs) well this is the thing i mean i feel like at the same time as we all have been experimenting so much with virtual space um all of the tech bros got really big into ayahuasca and taking like spirit journeys um so maybe the question is like what if the next thing is not looking for ways to escape but to be more present in the moment so you're high on drugs maybe you're high on drugs that like make you feel like you're really there and really alive rather than like off on another planet somewhere Oh, I don't know. I mean, you're right. You're right that all these tech gurus, I mean, even before the pandemic, um, Jack Dorsey went to a silent meditation retreat in Myanmar. Yeah, they're all looking for meaning. Look at think about the end of Mad Men, where Don Draper goes to one of these like Esalen retreats and he gets the idea for like a famous Coke jingle. Um, so I think everyone's searching for something, but we've been searching online. And so the question is like, where will we search for that stuff offline? I read there was an article in the Times this weekend about um, as more and more people work remotely and they're not going back to offices, um, corporate offsite events are more important than ever because it's an opportunity for people to bond. And so the companies that do these corporate offsites are having booming business, but some of the offsites are still organized on Zoom. And there's nothing I can, I would less rather do than go to like a fun offsite event where I'm in an escape room on Zoom. Like it's like there's something so corny about trying to translate real life experiences into virtual ones. Like I feel like the virtual world is its own world and it is real, but anytime it tries to imitate in-person community, it fails. Like a Zoom is not like me sitting across from you at a table because I can't make actual eye contact with you. I can only look at myself or look at my webcam. I wonder if the thing is that online is its own space and it's real, but it's just one space. And I think that there's this kind of fantasy, and this is encapsulated in many ways by the the pivot of like Facebook to the metaverse. And they're like, oh, we're gonna like we're gonna show you a new universe of spaces inside the internet. There's this idea that like you're gonna create a variety of environments and they're gonna be textured and they're gonna, you know, each be unique in their own way in the same way that the wider world, like, you know, different environments that you're in are are each different and each textured. Um I don't think that that works. I think that being on Zoom at work and being on Zoom at a quote unquote offsite event where you're in like a quote unquote escape room with your coworkers, those are still the same space. Like, yes, agree. You perceive it as the same space. Yeah. And there's just no appeal in that to me. I feel like there is like people selling the appeal of this, but I'm like, but it's not, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) like the match.com ad you just mentioned. You're like, but who is this appealing to? Who who looks at that and says like yes I would like I would like a relationship on the internet where I never met met my lover and be, maybe never need to <laughs> that's not even even the most fearful members of young millennial and and Gen Z um, when they talk about what they what they yearn for 
you know, they might be very afraid. Cause I think there is this craving. This is more of a millennial thing. Um, but for rules, you know, it's like if I have more rules, I will gain control over the things that I feel out of control of. It ha- kind of goes back to that sense of like, I don't know how to be an adult. I need manual. I need to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the ones who say that they want that or, you know, who try to live like that, what they actually yearn for is like the most organic, spontaneous meat cute. You know, mm. they want to like fall in love with somebody they bumped to on an escalator. Yeah, it's rough. I mean, it's rough out there. I feel like we've had this conversation before. Like it just dating is just rough out there. Like I don't see what's going to be – so what's going to be the vibe shift in dating? It is so interesting. You and Phoebe talked about this before, but like in the course of our adult lives, it went from being embarrassing to meet someone online to being the only place you could respectfully meet someone – because women, many women, feel creeped upon by guys approaching them in person. And many guys feel afraid to approach women in person for fear of being rejected or of of being told they're being creepy. Right. And in the meantime, even if not everybody actually feels that way, like the social pressure of it is leaving everybody completely out of practice with this basic form of human interaction that used to, you know, use something you had to work at. Like you had to, you had to try it a few times and you had to get good at it and nobody's good at it now. So the vibe shift here, all right, I'll make a prediction when it comes to sex. The vibe shift is going to be from like the sterile match.com, like we've never touched in a real life relationship to sweaty, spontaneous, completely bareback sex with people whose last names you don't know and whose first names maybe you don't know. Oh, but that's just Tinder. Didn't we already have that? Uh, I didn't know that that was what Tinder was like. Just like anonymous <laughs> anonymous hookups? But you had to meet them through the app. Oh, but you're saying something different. Yeah, I'm, I'm literally like imagining a return to kind of like a 1970s era. Like, I mean, yeah, this, is, this is why it would never happen because it needs to be not just before the uh, onslaught of online dating, but also before AIDS. So, um, you know, you didn't have any of that anxiety. So this will never work. But I'm going to predict it anyway because the stakes could not be lower. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. <laughs> What if, I don't know if this would happen, but what if the vibe shift went from, because like Bumble was a new innovation in online dating because it required the woman to make the first move. Could the vibe shift be women making the first move in real life? Maybe. I wonder because- Signs point to no. (laughs) I mean, the thing is, and this is one of these things that like as a species, we cannot seem to escape from no matter how enlightened we become, yeah. quote unquote enlightened. People like the setup wherein the man is the pursuer and the woman is the pursued. They like that. Even the most progressive among us like that. And I don't know, is this kind of coded into our DNA in such a way that we really can't get away from it? The thing that that made me wonder though is um, you do have this movement emerging in some spaces towards trad life, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a very, not just pre-internet, but like pre-women's liberation kind of a, a way to live. And I certainly understand why a generation raised on the sort of like Tumblr sex positivity um, that that stood in for forming 
intimate relationships, why they might be drawn to that. But maybe, yeah, like maybe the flip side to that that people will try is something that's happening in real life, but it involves female aggression, you know, and flipping the script on that. Yeah. I mean, this is like totally just hypothetical. I have like no evidence back this up, but it just seems, it seems possible be, if it's connected to kind of all the gains that women are making in America in terms of education and salary and employment, like a lot of women are doing well. And so will they will they use that empowerment in heterosexual romantic encounters? I don't know. Or will they want to be the trad wife? Will that, will that empowerment at work make them want to be something else? Yeah, that's a good question because the, the little like problem, little hitch in that whole scenario is not just that women are doing well, but a lot of them are doing better than men. Yeah. And this is something I don't see represented yet in popular culture. I can't think of a TV show or a movie where the woman out earns the man. Knocked up. Oh, knocked up. That's a yeah. That's from that's from a previous vibe shift. It is. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> like you yeah. know, we had all this. You know, we had this nascent anxiety about women overachieving while men became like large adult children who just slacked off and ate cereal all the time. And that was like you're describing like a whole era of like many, many movies. <laughs> yes. So do we go back to that? The man baby? <laughs> are men going to return to their baby status? Or are they going to emerge as a bunch of like Don Drapers? And I said I said that and immediately was like, no, he's not. He's not the person. And, you know, he wasn't just like the breadwinner. He was also mm-hmm. he had demons. Um, but this is also interesting. We talk about the vibe shift um, and movies and television. I'm just thinking about what's going on in the culture that we went from Breaking Bad and Walter White to Ted Lasso. Like what happened and what's going to happen? Because the backlash to Ted Lasso, whatever it is, I think is going to be spectacular. Yeah, I, I'm waiting for that one to come around. I tried watching Ted Lasso and I was like, I can't get down with this vibe. Like it was it was like good hearted and I was like, I don't want to watch them this good hearted. <laughs> like I call me a cynic, but like that was not my vibe. So I need whatever the backlash is to that. Yeah. I actually get a kick out of Ted Lasso, um, but it is a pure fantasy and and I think it's just kind of like fascinating in an anthropological way that you know you really can trace a line from the the breaking bad years of peak television to this show um and somebody on twitter uh, I don't remember who it was anymore identified the vibe of the Ted Lasso fandom which is kind of its own thing mm-hmm. as bullying positivity um <laughs> it's like it's like when people who've been through too many anti-bullying programs become anti-bullying bullies yeah yeah uh, th- a that, cousin of toxic posit- positivity. Yes. I mean, it's sort of like the way they they tried to do a Heathers remake and it didn't take off because the Heathers, like the mean popular girls, were basically social justice bullies and people like just rejected it. They were like, no, we won't accept this. Mm. Um, yeah, I think that a lot of the, the kind of culture writing class, people like the author of that BuzzFeed piece that called Megan Daum old and irrelevant. They didn't like 
to see themselves lampooned in that way. Should we talk about the vibe shift and masking our faces? Yeah. So this is where we're going to, this is going to be our cut. Um, so, you know, people who don't subscribe to the now Substack that <laughs> where Feminine Chaos lives um, are going to be missing out on a super candid mask off conversation about taking your mask off. Um, so, yeah, here we go. So that's the end of our public episode on The Vibe Shift with Lee Stein. If you'd like to hear the extended cut of this conversation, you can subscribe on our Substack. It is femchaospod.substack.com. For $5 a month, you'll get access to exclusive episodes, uncut extended episodes, and an entire back catalog of premium content. We would love to have you join us there. Meanwhile, I'm Kat Rosenfield, and this has been Feminine Chaos. Feminine Chaos.